what I'd like to focus on this morning is the idea of meditation as another way of dwelling on this earth. And the key word is dwelling. Uh, the, the Pali term that I'm translating here is vihara. Now some of you might be familiar with, for example, the Burmese Buddhist vihara. Uh, it means very often today simply monastery, place where monks live. But actually the term is used widely in the early texts to describe not a monastery or a place where monks live, but simply um, the way in which we dwell on earth, the way in which we live in this world is called a vihara. And the way that we do that is through cultivating this capacity to dwell rather than to constantly be reacting and going off into something else. Dwelling is a fundamental human experience. Um, it has to do with our sense of being located in a physical space, a physical environment. It has to do also with a sense of a space in which we feel sheltered and safe. Uh, it has to do with a space that we become intimately familiar with, our home, for example. But here and elsewhere, the Buddha uses this idea of dwelling as a metaphor for what we do when we practice meditation. Let me give you an example of this. The, there, there, there is an, a, a short discourse in the connected discourses, the Sanyutta Nikaya, where someone asks, what does Gautama do when he goes on retreat? At the Buddha's time, every monsoon period during the summer months was, was taken as a period of, of retreat. The monks wouldn't travel, um, they'd stay in one place, and they would meditate, they would have discussions, much like we're doing here, I feel. And so some people clearly thought, well, the, but, but what does, does Gautama himself do when he meditates? a question that many of us might have had at some time or another. And this is Gautama's reply. He says, during the three months rain period, I focus on co the collectedness which is mindfulness of breathing. The collectedness or the samadhi sometimes translated as concentration, but collectedness, I feel, captures it much better. The collectedness, which is mindfulness of breathing. Now, some of us might think, well, that's odd. This is the 
fellow who has attained all these great enlightenments and so on, why is he doing this basic practice? I thought that was just for beginners. Quite clearly, it's not. And I find this a good example of how um, Gautama does not establish hierarchies of meditation. There are, there are advanced practices which are so uh, seductive sometimes in certain Buddhist uh, presentations. Here we have the Buddha himself stating that during these retreats he basically watches his breath. And that becomes how he collects himself, how he unifies his body, bodily, emotional, mental energies, brings them together through dwelling on the breath. Then he gives three qualifications of what mindfulness of breathing is. He says that it is an Arya Vihara, a Brahma Vihara, and a Tathagata Vihara. Three kinds of Vihara. Okay, not monasteries, but dwellings. It's a way of being with yourself, a way of being in the world, that has three qualities. The first is Arya, an Arya Vihara. It is a noble dwelling. Collectedness, grounded in awareness of the breath, imparts a certain dignity and nobility to one's life. I remember when I was much younger, a long time ago now, one of the things that really impressed me about Buddhism was actually the photographs I saw of people meditating. I remember one image in particular of a young woman, probably in a Zen monastery in Japan, uh, just the way she sat seemed somehow to impart more than just a physical posture, but actually a very specific modality of being in this world. There was a harmony, a balance, an uprightness that wasn't tense. And this suggests also that we're not talking about a kind of mechanical exercise where we get good at staying with more and more breaths. It has to do with a way of being of which the breath is simply the animating spirit, one might say. And again, as we've been saying and we will continue to be saying, this meditation operates within the frame of a certain ethical vision. And that ethical vision is what brings you on the retreat in the first place. Now, why have you come here? Uh, what kind of values do you seek to nurture and cultivate and develop on this retreat? <clears throat> the breath becomes integral to that quest to become 
the kind of person you aspire to be. It's not some separate technical exercise that we can become proficient at. That might be part of it. It's true that over time we can become more effectively focused more and more in our breathing, in our body. But the bigger picture, I feel, needs to be given emphasis. That we are cultivating mindfulness of the breathing within the framework of a vision of what kind of person we aspire to be, which is for me the definition of what ethics rather than moral rules is all about. So there's this notion of dignity. The second is that Gautama describes mindfulness of the breathing as a brahma vihara, which means a sacred dwelling or a divine dwelling. Now, many of you are probably familiar with this term brahma vihara, divine dwelling, divine abode, because that is what, or that is how Gautama describes loving kindness, compassion, um, how does my appreciative joy, and equanimity. These are called the four divine abodes. They're also vihara, not monasteries. These are ways in which we can dwell in the world. We can dwell with kindness, with love, with compassion, with appreciation, and with equanimity. So, once again, we can see how the idea of dwelling is used as a metaphor. And it suggests very much also that loving-kindness, compassion, are as natural to us as is breathing. It's unusual that mindfulness of breath is is described as a Brahma-vihara. But I think that is rather um, pertinent to what we're doing here. It's a capacity we have to come to rest and to dwell in the fundamental rhythm of life itself, the breath. The breath, therefore, is not just a kind of bellows action of the lungs that keeps us going, but the breath refers to something that is constitutive of our very existence on this earth. And in that sense, it is somehow associated with the sacred or the divine. Now, as you know, no doubt, Buddhism doesn't speak of a god, or maybe speaks of gods sometimes in this context of Indian cosmology, but it certainly is not grounded on a theistic view of the world at all. And yet, Gautama doesn't reject the notion of divine or sacred. So what does he mean? I think we get a clue here from the way in which um, the word is sometimes rendered as, not as, as Brahma, 
but as simply immeasurable. And when these four viharas were translated into Tibetan, uh, they called them the tsamishi, the four immeasurables, the four boundlessnesses, as it were. And I feel that that's what here is being suggested in the idea of sacred. The idea that the breath brings us into an awareness of the boundarylessness. <laughs> Sorry for non-native speakers. <laughs> the fact that our experience is without boundaries. And the breath brings us very much into that awareness. We might start by thinking of the breath as just a kind of bellows action in the lungs. But the more we pay attention to it, the more that we see that it is our primary relationship to the environment that we inhabit. As we know now from botany and biology and so on, Breath is only possible because of photosynthesis of trees and leaves and plants that generates the oxygen that we need in order to live. So in breathing we are participating in the life of the biosphere in which we are totally and utterly embedded. And this then takes us away from the boundary of me, the boundary of my skin, and opens us up to something that transcends us almost infinitely. So in this sense, we open up to what is not me. We open up to the sheer presence of life itself. And there's something I feel for many of us even those, we, even those of us who don't, who are rather wary of terms like God or sacred or whatever, it opens up a sense of something transcendent, something that we acknowledge as transcending everything that we, our separate egos, are, and yet something in which every moment of our life is embedded. So it's an opening up to that. And finally, he describes the um, uh, collectiveness that is mindfulness of breathing as a Tathagata Vihara. I would translate that as a dwelling of the true person. Tathagata is a term often found in early Buddhist texts. Um, it's given rise to endless commentarial speculation, but in order not to bore you with any of that, I'll just cut to my own understanding of what it means. I think Tathagata simply means the true person, much in the same way that you find that expression in Taoism. In Chinese thought too, you have the idea of the Chen Zhen, the true person the authentic person. When Gautama gives a definition of Tathagata, or at least on one occasion, he says that the Tathagata, the true person, is the one 
who says what he does and does what he says. In other words, there's no dissimulation. There's no pretense. The sage, the wise person, the true person, is um, what you see is what you get. WYSIWYG, as we used to call it. In other words, um, there's not, as it were, a show that you put on for other people and an inner private life that actually operates quite differently. But rather there is a transparency, an honesty in one's being on earth. So, again, this has got nothing specifically to do with breathing, but by grounding ourselves in the utter simplicity uh, of the fact that we breathe and being content just to breathe, to be a breathing human, is a way of tapping into a primal honesty with ourselves. On a retreat like this too, we don't have to go through the social rituals of impressing other people with who we are. Again, an advantage of silence. We don't have to present ourselves. We don't have to you know, convey the idea that we're kind of interesting and what we do is kind of important and, uh, and so on. Um, Martine and I and Tony can do that, but you can't. <laughs> but to take this seriously, um, once again, I think the, the association of this with the breathing is, is significant. Um, it doesn't tell us how to do the breath meditation at all, but it locates the awareness of the breath within a wider frame, a frame of dignity, a frame of something sacred or transcendent or immeasurable, and a frame of uh, honesty and uh, transparency, particularly here with ourselves, to be honest with ourselves. And silent meditation, when we don't introduce a theme or an object to meditate about, but we simply say, come back to your breath or the sensations in your body or your feelings uh, or the sounds as we'll be exploring in this week, is in some ways just bringing us into a kind of fundamental honesty. Uh, Chugyam Trungpa used this expression, basic sanity, which I think is a very good phrase. It's a basic sanity. Here we can now, in the, the, in the days that we have here together, we can let go of all of our um, personality stuff, you know, how, you know, who we are and what we do and so forth. That's got its place too, of course. But here we can just step back into a basic honesty with what we are and who we are the kind of living organisms uh, that we are. And to say, yes, this is at the ground of my life, this breath, this body, 
these feelings, these sounds. It's like coming, it's like landing somewhere. Again, the notion of vihara, dwelling. Learning to dwell, to live in that primal condition of our humanity, but also, more than just our humanity, our, our being a sentient being, a sentient creature, like the rabbits running around the fields and the birds in the trees and the insects. It, it's, it, it, it's recovering our sense of um, participation with all life that has evolved on this earth. Now, in a rather more technical sense, I'd like just to remind you that when we do awareness of the breath, we're not trying to control the breath. We're not trying to breathe in a way that we think is somehow right. There's no right or wrong way to breathe. Our breath is simply, well, not simply, but our breath is often a kind of barometer of how we feel, our mood. If we're feeling anxious, our breath will be maybe a little shallower, a little jagged. If we're feeling really chilled, relaxed, our breath will become slower and deeper. But the point of this meditation is just to use the breath or just to become aware of the breath and to dwell in it as it is. And again, that's another way of just accessing honestly how we feel. It's true that as we calm down, as we get more deeply into the retreat, the breath will probably become longer, more regular. But the point is not to aim at some ideal kind of breathing, because at any point in this next week, we might find ourselves breathing quite differently for some reason or other. It doesn't matter. It's to somehow connect with this primary rhythm of our body that establishes the foundational relationship to the biosphere. So don't control the breath and just pay attention to how you, co you comment on your meditation, in your breathing meditation. And catch yourself when you're complaining about my breath not being steady enough or whatever it might be. Just accept it as it is, moment to moment, and be able to say, yes, this is where I am right now. And that where I am right now might be frustrated, agitated, angry, bored. That's okay. That doesn't matter. This is not a practice in which we're trying to somehow um, uh, fit an image we have of what it means to be a good meditator or a good 
spiritual practitioner or a good Buddhist or whatever we identify as. It's about our fundamental humanity, about our fundamental sentience. Also as we breathe, as we pay attention to the breath, we cannot but become aware of how the breath is a process, a rhythm. It comes and it goes. It comes and it goes. We inhale, we exhale. We inhale, we exhale. And as my Tibetan teachers told me many, many years ago, every breath you take is one breath less. <laughs> and you don't know how many are left that you're going to take. Now we have 44 people on this retreat. There were supposed to be 45. But the participant who hasn't come died yesterday. And we received a note. So it, death is not so far away. That could have been you. I find it very sobering when death comes that close to us. The difference between a person sitting with us here, sharing our meals, which was the person's intention, and yet that never happened. So mindfulness of the breath is also a way of coming to terms with our own impermanence, our own death, our own fragility, our own dependence upon the pumping of a muscle in the chest. 